This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is film. Uh, Films, not necessarily Christian films, but the media of film and the way in which Christians can utilize uh, film for their work in in uh, the public space of of uh, thinking through engagement and life experience. And I have two really super wonderful guests who are good friends. So this is this is always a joy for me to be together with them. Uh, Claude Alexander is pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina, and does a myriad of other things that I could describe. But I'll just I'll just leave it at that. Claude, thank you for being with us. Glad to be here. And uh, John Pretty, who uh, runs an organization called Windrider that you're going to be hearing a lot about as we talk. And uh, John, thank you for being with us today. Great to be with you. So uh, let's turn our attention to film, and, and we're going to be talking about the Sundance Film Festival and Windrider, et cetera. So John, I'm going to let you introduce kind of the topic. And I always ask an initial question that kind of get us off the ground, and so which is, what's a nice guy like you doing in a gig like this? And uh, talk about how you got connected to film. And Claude, uh, that's a that's a heads up warning. You're going to get the same question after John. Cool. Well, it's great to be with you and certainly be, to be with uh, Bishop Alexander. Claude, always great to see you. And uh, by the way, Daryl, as you know, Claude was our chaplain this year at uh, the Windrider Summit and Sundance Film Festival. So um, it was really marvelous to have him with us to bring his um, sort of uh, lilt to our uh, theological conversations. For me, um, I'm a business guy by background, and somewhere around the year 2000, I decided to go to Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, get a little uh, infrastructure around my theology, and somehow or another ended up in the film business. In particular, uh, we had the idea to bring seminary students, in those days from Fuller Theological Seminary, and undergraduate filmmakers from Biola Film School to go to Sundance and watch Sundance films and talk amongst ourselves and now, uh, 18 years later, we're entering into our 19th year where Windrider is a formal partner with the Sundance Film Festival. And we have an event called the Windrider Summit and Sundance Film Festival Experience. And uh, we bring students and staff from 40 Christian colleges, theological seminaries, ministry groups, and we come to Sundance. We watch those films and uh, we come back and talk to the filmmakers uh, and, and ask the deeper questions. And then beyond that, we curate short films and uh, have a distribution model where we're able to bring those short films to uh, some of those very institutions that I mentioned around the country. And, and Claude, how did, so how did a pastor slash chaplain get involved with the film industry? <laughs> that, just, that, that sounds an intriguing. It's not the normal path, so let's, I'll just no, put it that no. way. Well, 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 it started with, with my mom taking me to movies hmm. and me having a love for film. And then while doing my master's work at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, I took a class entitled Theology and Film. Hmm. And we watched films and then began to look at what they're saying. What are they, they, they saying about what it means to be alive, to be, to be human? Every film is raising a question or providing a view in terms of, of what it means to live, how one transcends, etc. And so from that, it just set me on a, a trajectory of looking differently at films and more importantly, helping our congregation look differently at films. And so we began to institute a theology and film course in our congregation. 
And when my daughter uh, hooked up with Windrider, that was just an added bonus for me. She gets paid to watch movies, and I get to tag along. So, <laughs> so you're the tag-along pastor. Is that what I'm you're the, telling me? I'm the tag-along pastor. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Well, um, and just to tell our part of the story, we've been connected to Windrider now, I don't know, for five or six years. Uh, one of our former professors, Tim Basslin, used to take students to the uh, Windrider Sundance event. And this year, I had the benefit and the honor of being able to attend as one of the DTS representatives and uh, got to see a week's worth. Of, I, I haven't seen so much film in such a short time ever in my life. Uh, felt inundated, but it was quite, a, quite an event. So let's talk a little bit before we take a look at the specific event. What is it that, um, and Claude, you've alluded to this a little bit about films asking core questions, but John, I'd like to hear your take on what is the film can do for people in the church, and how should we think about film um, and, and the way it can help us um, understand kind of who we're engaged with uh, from day to day? Well, you know, the way we think about it is uh, we use the term, the theological term, reverse the hermeneutical flow, which is uh, instead of starting with um, our tradition and scripture and working out to film or story, we start with the story in and of itself and then bring it back, uh, reverse it, if you will, uh, and bring it back to our context, back to our traditions, back to our scriptures. And in particular, independent film, which is why we are very interested in uh, having been partners with the Sundance Film Festival for so long, independent film sits outside of Hollywood, if you will. And really, in so many ways, independent film is um, a filmmaker who may be a writer and director. It could be a documentary film that really they function as poets and sages in many ways, prophets in some ways. They take us to places we haven't been. They introduce us to people we haven't met and it brings the human component uh, into our worlds and empathy is unleashed. And so we're able to have conversations around very important subjects, um, subjects that the people of faith are already having conversations around, but they sort of remove the barrier of polarity. You know, we're not sitting on this side or that side of a political or theological conversation. We're looking at the story as a standalone um, piece of art. And then we interact with it directly. And in the same way, it uh, is true for short films, because most all short films are independent films. And in the same way, they bring to us that unique, independent voice that allows us to interact. So if we're dealing with the documentary, we kind of get to drop in on the experience, if I can say it that way. If we're dealing with a piece of, um, of creative art, uh, we get to he see a particular story from a particular perspective. This makes me think of one of the pieces that uh, we saw during, uh, during the film festival, and I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but it was the film that was done by the guy in a wheelchair. Um, at some, it, the title was something like, Am I Being Seen? or something like that. And, uh, and everything was filmed from his perspective of his experience in the wheelchair, which technically took a lot of work in order to be able to uh, pull off. And I thought that was just, you know, I, I've, I've thought about what it would be like to be to have to live life in that kind of a situation, but I don't think I ever experienced it in quite the way that that gave me the opportunity to at least get a sense of in terms of what was going on. What's interesting, that film is called uh, I Didn't See You There. Okay. And, and the filmmaker is a man named Reed Davenport, who is a uh, received his MFA from Stanford University. They have an elite documentary film program. And uh, Reed has cerebral palsy. And what's interesting to me is he said the film is unabashedly a disabled film. Mm -hmm. So it reflects what you just said, which is the perspective of a film from a man in a wheelchair and from that point of view. But he said the reason he wanted to do the film is to help the audience see themselves differently in the in the face of others. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was the Windrider moment when he talked about 
how we might see ourselves differently, not so much how we might see him uh, differently. Yeah. And that's that's the juxtaposition of that. Yeah. And of course, one of the things that the film does is you watch people process how they're interacting with him Mm -hmm. as a person in a wheelchair, which puts you in the spot of those people. And yeah. boom, you're right there um, thinking through and, and, and to some sense asking yourself questions about the way in which you deal and, and think about um, interacting with people who, who we commonly describe as disabled but who are s- sweet people in the image of God trying to make their way through life and, uh, and experience it. Um, Claude, another window that I thought was important, and 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 we're going to go through it. We're going to name a whole series of films that are were a sure. part of this this um, time frame between Wind Rider and uh, Sundance. Some of which Wind Rider highlighted, and some of which were a part of the Sundance event itself. But another uh, a film that I thought was interesting was a film about uh, women, uh, African American women who um, who have the limitations of the way medical care happens for them and uh, interact with that. I I think the movie was called uh, Aftershock, if I've got this right. And and it was also pretty fascinating. It was actually one of a series of films that dealt with the area of race. I wonder if that film or any other film on race uh, struck you about uh, the Sundance experience, the Windrider Sundance experience. Well, you know, the wonderful thing about uh, film in general, independent film in, in particular, is, is uh, how they function the same way parables function. Hmm. And that is, a story is told that draws you in, almost uh, disarmingly so. And, uh, and it it confronts you with an issue and you begin to make decisions or judgments. And then what Jesus seeks to do is for then those individuals having made those judgments about the story to then begin to apply them to their own lives, how you see yourself and how you might need to change. And so, um, I didn't see you there, does that. And aftershock, this notion of a smaller earthquake that follows a larger one. There is the the problem of black women and the health care that they receive, especially leading up to delivery and immediately afterwards. And how there's a disproportionate amount of individuals who are not taken seriously when they mention to their doctors certain things and suffer as a result. But then it also showed how these men who are fathers of the children are taking up the advocacy as their response to the pain. Hmm. And so we received first the issue of disparate treatment of women, a tragedy that comes as a result of that, and the resilience and transcendence of these families who are left in the wake as they seek to do something positive to change the narrative. Yeah, and and what was what's really interesting about the Sundance experience is is that you get a variety of films that 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 show a similar kind of space but from a completely different angle so i'm thinking about aftershock but then i'm also thinking about a film called midwives Mm, which was also about the care of pregnant women in a country where there was ethnic tension and this particular um place where the midwife service was undertaken had a religious component to it where the where the person who was responsible for the center and the and the women who were helping were of different religious backgrounds, which the pol- politics of the country was not comfortable with, and so the tension that that in- introduced into the care of something as basic as giving birth, right. a completely different angle, but but uh, 
a similar kind of human problem uh, that needed to be uh, unfurled. John, this one struck me as interesting, especially in thinking about it being juxtaposed to Aftershock in the way in which that worked. I think what's really interesting, Daryl, is um, this idea that at Sundance, and certainly Windrider in curating Sundance films for our event and our partnership with Sundance, every year I'm always amazed how these themes resonate with the broader audience, but but most certainly with the Windrider audience, thoughtful Christian audience trying to make sense, make meaning of the world that we live in. So different points of view and perspectives about a topic feels very much uh, like the way the Sundance Film Festival curates content around big themes Mm -hmm. and the way we can interact with themes that come at uh, subject matters differently. And I think that's where the beauty within lies because it's about the conversation broadly about a topic, but having more than one point of view. And in our culture today, Because we're in such a combative space um, where there's echo chambers, sometimes people only get one point of view, and oftentimes it's their own point of view. Whereas you just described two films about one topic uh, around mothers and birth and multiple ways of looking at that subject and then having a broader conversation, and each person can respond to how they interact with the subject matter on their own. Yeah, and, and, and again, just because I'm in the business of connecting dots here with what we're seeing in, in, in the film festival, I'm going to shift back to where we started with the film, uh, I Did Not See You There. Another f- documentary piece that was like that was the one called Street Reporter, which was about people in D.C. who are homeless. Um, uh, the, the, the thing that was interesting about this is that this was filmed by someone who at one time, if I understand the story correctly, what was homeless herself. She had gotten an education to become a journalist, a photojournalist. And one of the topics that she chose to pursue was, I guess her, you could say her former life, in which she personalizes some of the people who are on the street and the struggle. I, what, I, what I like about some of these documentaries is they're so honest about the space that they're filming. And in one particular case, um, one of the people who they highlighted is a person who is struggling with drugs, and it's very clear that they're struggling with drugs and, and the debilitating effect of that. None of that's being hidden in the midst of telling the story of this is how some people live. And you were talking about empathy earlier. That one strikes me as, as another example of, of kind of dropping you into an experience that I know otherwise I might never have. Yeah, you know, as I watched that one, um, the, the transcendence portrayed in the lives of these individuals, they're owning their own stories. They're, they're advocating for their, for their condition. The, the gifts and talents and skills that, that these individuals have and are shown using, seeking to rise above. I remember Whoopi Goldberg at a comic relief event saying, the homeless are looking more like us because more of us are becoming homeless. Hmm. And when you watch that film and you see these individuals and you, and you hear them and you see their skills, these are, these are not unskilled individuals. These are individuals with skills who are homeless. You come to realize one there, but for the grace of God, go I. And you are impressed by their willingness to stay in the fight, uh, often uh, against tremendous odds, whether it's addiction, mental health, um, but they're seeking to rise above it. Yeah, uh, uh, we're going through these pretty quickly, but I think it's uh, pretty interesting. I'm going to shift. Can I just? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, John. Sure. Go ahead. So, Street Reporter, I just want to uh, make a shout out to the filmmaker, Laura Waters Henson, who is a longtime friend and collaborator with Windrider. And that film 
was awarded our first ever Women in Film Award hmm. at our Wind Rider Film Showcase this year. So although not part of the Sundance Film Festival, we kicked off our week with Street Reporter. And why I think that film is so interesting to this conversation is you have a really successful and talented filmmaker, Laura Waters Henson. And exactly what Claude was saying, um, it's about real people. And, and it was in Washington, D.C., so right in the shadows of uh, the most powerful buildings in, uh, in America are homeless people who are then becoming journalists. And Sheila, who is the protagonist, the lead subject in that film, is now going on the road with Laura to the film screenings. And so the film has even allowed a voice of adv advocacy to come out of, of sort of a very difficult and situation of despair. So these films also have legs beyond only audience interaction. They also in turn can become films of advocacy. Yeah. In fact, what I found fascinating, this goes back to the transparency is in many ways you had two stories because you had the story uh, of Sheila, the, the person, the photojournalist who at the end of the film, um, uh, I, I, I won't bother with a spoiler alert here. Um, at the end of the film, ends up having her own home and is able to take care of herself. She's come out of the situation and has gotten the education to do so, et cetera, and obviously is pretty talented at what she's ending up doing because the film is beautifully uh, shot and developed. Uh, and in contrast to that is one of the men that they focused in on who is struggling, still struggling with his drug addiction at the end at the end of the film so that it's not a uh, and they all lived happily ever after story it's a very real down-to-earth story about the the difficulty of being in this position and one person who's able to overcome it and one person who's still struggling and still caught in the in the in the storm uh, of of life choices that have that have obviously impacted his life um, just very powerfully done, and the juxtaposition, I think, is part of what makes that particular story um, so particularly fascinating. I'm going to shift gears entirely and go to something that, that was just fascinating for a whole series of other reasons, and that was the film called Fire of Love, which uh, was just um, is about a French couple who, have who gave their lives to filming uh, and ha were fascinated with volcanoes. And uh, so it's a, a love story on the one hand about how they met and got into doing what they were doing, but also built, I think, off their archives uh, because they, in the midst of pursuing this passion and with all the threat and danger that they constantly had to live with, finally filmed at a, at a site in which the volcano overtook both of them. And... Uh, and they passed away. Um, co your comments on on that film, uh, uh, John? What did, what did you think about that particular piece? Completely different than what we've been talking about in some ways. Well, that film is an amazing film. The filmmaker, um, she was able to use this archival footage uh, of these two scientists who got who were in love themselves, but they made all these films to raise money for their research to to research volcanoes. And uh, of course they got too close and their lives ended by the, by a volcano itself. But the film is amazing because it's a love story. Mm -hmm. It's a story about that, that opens up the conversation about uh, the issues of, um, of the planet and the issues of stewardship of the planet, the power of the planet and uh, how all that comes forward into um something that happened years ago that is now relevant to today. And what's really interesting to me about that film is that film got picked up with, you know, at a festival when a film gets bought mm -hmm. for distribution, that film got picked up by day two or three at the festival for one of the highest dollar amounts ever for a documentary film. Hmm. And so it, it was, it was a successful film commercially, but you're talking about it in the, in the context of why we would be interested in it. And, uh, a love story about scientists that die from lava from a volcano that gets picked up uh, and now will be commercially successful. It's really a wonderful um, example. And, and another dimension of this, of course, is, is that when you see that film as a Christian, 
and you're thinking about the design and the power and the amazement of what the creation is in and of itself and the responsibility to sort it, because part of their concern was in studying volcanoes was to get to the point where they could help people who lived around volcanoes so that they could be protected from that power on the one hand, and yet at the same time, you're amazed at the how can I say it, of the of the vivid and powerful beauty of all these films of what the volcano does that you normally don't get to talk about being dropped into an experience you're unlikely to have. I'm not getting that close to a volcano in my life. Claude, what what did you think of that of that particular film? Well, uh, what really struck me was their understanding of death. Mm-hmm. They had a very real understanding of the possibility of death. Um, and the interconnection that existed between them and the rest of nature. That was very, you know, biblically, this interconnection is, is in the word Adam and Adama, mm-hmm. right? That this, this connection between man and the earth. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they knew that intuitively and were, were able to image that in very profound ways. So I was struck by that. Yeah, so very, very interesting th- uh, film on, it, on its own. Now I'm going to shift gears to a couple of pieces of film uh, that, have, that have made news a little bit after Sundance. Um, the first is, and you were talked about the one in which Fire of Love got bought out and got into larger distribution as a result of Sundance. The next one I'm going to mention is Navalny, uh, which certainly has made a public splash. In fact, I think it's pretty ironic that uh, that CNN has been running Navalny here in the last recent weeks. And, of course, this is the story of uh, the opponent of of, of Putin uh, pre-Ukraine war and uh, and the efforts to poison him and the story about how he made the decision to go back to Russia and the walk through uh, that experience. John, uh, the, sometimes I'm asking you these questions because you're, you're someone who's a filmmaker and has sensitivity for film. Um, what struck you about that documentary, which I thought was, uh, again, very well packaged in terms of the way it presented the subject matter. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Well, it's an interesting question that you asked that in the context of today, where we know that Russia has invaded Ukraine and there's a war going on as we speak. And Alexei Navalny, of course, was, spe- was specifically speaking out against um, that interaction in Ukraine, as well as Syria and Crimea and other places. What um, I often say about films at Sundance and films where Winrider tries to create, uh, curate films at Sundance are films that have sort of a prophetic um, vision into what might be happening. We oftentimes need, because we have so many young people that are part of Winrider, young, thoughtful Christians, oftentimes history is a very important um, thing to bring forward. Navalny, Navalny does that as well. But it also is prophetic and futuristic in the sense that here's a guy that was a dissident speaking out directly against the Russian government, in particular, Vladimir Putin. And as a result of that, ends up getting poisoned with you know, a nerve agent and almost dies, literally is on his deathbed. They had to rush him to, I think, a hospital in Paris. So this thing is, uh, you you can't write this stuff. If you wanted to make a narrative script, which I'm sure somebody will do, believe me, if you want to make a narrative script about a three-part, you know, narrative arc, Navalny would fit that, but it's real. 
and it's a retrospective on what has happened. It's very much in the present, but in the context of where we saw it at Sundance, it was very futuristic and in our language prophetic as to uh, what actually ended up happening, which is a war in Ukraine. And what I thought also was fascinating about it is, is that they did very much document his return in which the result, of course, was he got arrested. And uh, uh, and you saw that whole, you saw that all unfold, uh, uh, both in terms of uh, the documentary work, but also the news reports that ended up surrounding that event. Very, very, very powerfully done. Let me switch to another one that's completely different space, but also worked very uh, similarly, Claude. And this is the one called Queen of Basketball, which, I, which you know, some of these uh, topics are, 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 in one sense, intense and uh, very interesting in terms of life space. But others of them deal with things that we deal with on a regular basis, but we tend not to think about, uh, how can I say this, the more serious or human side of, of what it takes um, to be a, a top-flight athlete. Queen of Basketball, what did you think of that one? Well, it, it, it hit me on several levels because growing up in Mississippi during the time of Lucy Harris, I knew, I knew of her. Hmm. And so the film was introducing someone who for Mississippians uh, was an individual of, of great pride. And so I remember her playing. I remember her dominance. I remember her dignity. And for that to be captured on film for the larger society to be able to see and appreciate was, uh, was of great value to me as a Mississippian, one. And, and then as someone who has daughters who seek to live their lives with dignity, um, secondly. And then um, thirdly, she could have easily been a top star in the WNBA had the WNBA existed in her time. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it did not, she was not able to capitalize on it, even though she is known as being the first woman drafted by an NBA team. Oh, you took the um, words right out of my mouth. For those of you who don't know who Lucy Harris is, she, um, she led Delta State to uh, NCAA Women's Championships. Uh, was a dominant player in in the seventies, I think you said, and yeah. uh, uh, on the Olympic team for the United States, um, Queen of Basketball. That's the title, and she actually had a choice about about following through on being drafted in the NBA or raising a family. And the the end of the film is her explaining how proud she was of the children that she raised. And her affirming the decision that she made not to try out for the NBA, but to but to be dedicated uh, to her family, uh, which is a dimension of the story I never knew. I, I knew about the other, uh, and um, just added a whole different angle on everything that the story was telling about about what she what she went through, and also the pressure that she felt. As this lead athlete, um, representing uh, herself and and really also representing a minority, uh, and the pressure, the psychological pressure that that put her under, that also gets described in the film, which I thought was revealing. Yeah, when you when you when you think about the, the timeline of of her dominance, it paralleled in some respects uh, Bill Walton. And UCLA, mm-hmm. uh, but but think about the level of exposure and celebration he received, and they received. In comparison, she was equally dominant in leading her team to successive championships. Mm-hmm. But the the level of of attention was less 
even though the pressure she may have faced was greater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found that to be a, a fascinating uh, a fascinating glimpse. And, of course, her personality just comes through loud and clear in that piece. Um, it won. Uh, John, am I right about this? Didn't, didn't that – uh, sorry, not only win y'all's award, y'all's award, my Texans coming out, <laughs> y'all's award for uh, Windrider, but didn't it also win uh, an Academy Award? Am I right about that? Well, it sure did, uh, Daryl. And what's really exciting about that, the filmmaker is Ben Proudfoot. And I believe Ben is the, the finest documentary short filmmaker on the planet. We had honored him this year as our 2022 Spirit of Windrider Award recipient. And in a way of honoring him, we showed two films on our opening night event. One was Concertos of Conversation. I'm going there next. Which was, okay, okay. Well, we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay. That was nominated for an Academy Award last year, mm-hmm. 2021. And the second film that we showed that evening was Queen of Basketball. Well, we didn't know at the time that it was going to then be nominated for uh, – an Academy Award and ultimately win the Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. So it's an example of where a filmmaker, Ben Proudfoot, documentary film, in this case, a short documentary, which is what Ben does, um, unpeels a story about a woman, Lucille Harris, who whose shoulders an entire generation of women athletes have stood upon. Mm-hmm. This is a woman who scored the first basket in the women's Olympics because there were no women's basketball in the Olympics before Lucille Harris. Hmm. So this is again, an example of where film independent film in particular documentary film really can bring us uh, to an understanding of from whence we came. Mm-hmm. And Ben does, you guys met talk, both talked about the personal story of Lucy Harris, her family, her story, her challenges. And this is where, really amazing documentary storytelling comes comes to its highest level is uh bringing those stories to us hmm. well let me go to the one uh, the, the uh, documentary that i certainly enjoyed and i think it, i think this is the documentary that hooked me on documentaries if i can say it that way and it's concerto and john i'll let you tell the story of this because my understanding is that when this was originally produced it's it, it they were originally headed towards one storyline, and then in the midst of doing their work, they discovered, ooh, this story may even be a better story. So um, talk about that with us, Concerto, what it is, and then and then what the transition was. Concerto's a conversation is, a, again, a documentary short, filmmaker Ben Proudfoot. It's 11 minutes, 12 minutes, something like that, nominated for an Academy Award 2021. And it's the story of uh, a grandfather and a grandson talking to each other. Uh, The grandson is one of the preeminent um, musicians in Hollywood. He is uh, he makes a lot of the musical scores for films in Hollywood, is successful in his own right. And Ben Proudfoot, the filmmaker, found the film, found the musician. Uh, They were going to film together at a, a concerto. And Ben said, I think what would be a more interesting story is if I understood the story between you and your grandfather. And the grandfather comes from the Jim Crow South. He fled the Jim Crow South. He ultimately got to Los Angeles. He ultimately became a businessman, opened up a dry cleaner. And uh, and that's how he um, created a new life in Southern California where um, where the generations in his family would be changed. And, and what you see is the passing on of a set of values and family commitments that this younger um, uh, musician and composer, because uh, I think the original intent was to film how this young man was about to debut a concerto for the Los Angeles Philharmonic. 
And in the midst of doing that story, they discovered this relationship. And then the, the, the piece, and it's amazing. You said it's 12 minutes long. I mean, you wonder, how can someone do this in 12 minutes? But in the midst of 12 minutes, you get the story of the grandfather. You get the very good feel for what the relationship between the grandfather and the grandson is, which adds a family dimension that people connect with, obviously. And, and you see this development. And the interesting thing about the grandfather is when he tells his story about how he built his business, you mentioned Jim Crow and it's being post-Jim Crow, but he uh, how he initially tried to go into banks to get loans for his business, and he was unable to do so. But when he applied for those loans over the phone, he was able to get the money. And I thought, well, and, that's an interesting Chris, piece to the story. And the grandson, Chris Bowers, is um, a preeminent composer. He's, I think he's 30 years old, 31 years old. Grandfather Horace is in his 90s. So this, what really um, struck me is this intergenerational conversation yes. and how important having an intergenerational dialogue is. And to see the two of them talking to each other, uh, grandfather to grandson, really, really a, a beautiful way to, uh, to show their relationship. Claude, uh, any impressions on concerto that we haven't raised? Well, this, this, this also notion of the drive that both of them have, mm -hmm. right? And and for the the grandfather, what what was also interesting was the faith element, mm -hmm. and and the grandson not forgetting how to play a hymn. Right. At the very right. end of the at the very end of the at, piece, yeah. At the very end of the of the piece, the grandson plays a a song that was very very um, dear to the grandfather, and how matters of faith are transmitted from one generation. To another. Yeah, and they were singing it together, side by side, yeah. in harmony. I mean, yeah. it was uh, that was just a beautifully done piece. Let me. Okay, so I'm I'm linking pieces here, and I'm thinking in the back of my head, we saw all these pieces in one week. You know, yeah. <laughs> Which meant, well, my wife thought I had I had gone into a black hole, a dark hole. You know, I did, I'm not seeing much of you this week. I said I'm having quite a week. Um, in, in seeing all these. Another film that looks at uh, intergenerational relationship but has a completely different feel is After You've Saved the World. Uh, that, was the, that was the story of a mom who worked in uh, who worked in an effort to provide services to people, um, community care, et cetera. But the relationships in her own house with her husband and with her son were very problematic. Um, this was dramatic. This was a dramatic film, so this wasn't a documentary. But I can imagine, and this is another way in which fiction and nonfiction cross. I can imagine a lot of people watching that film and recognizing either things in their own relationships, family relationships, or things about people that they know in family relationships, and being struck very much by it. John, any comments on after you have saved the world? I just think it goes back to, you know, that's a Sundance film uh, that we were able to really kind of rally around because it really is about family, family dynamics. It's about husbands and wives. It's about fathers and mothers. It's about son and father, son and mother. You know, so, so much of what uh, is real is what happens in our own homes. So much of what is real what happens in our own families. We talked about concerto and intergenerational. And this film, in some ways, takes a different look at the family structure, um, the beauty in, within a family, the conflict within a family. And as you mentioned earlier, not independent films don't always have a happy ending. That'd be a Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. So, so many of these films um, leave us wanting a bit more. They leave the topic unresolved mm -hmm. we don't have clarity of what will happen next sort of feels like uh like a wednesday at home yeah uh, you don't have all the you don't have all the answers and that's why i like that film it left you thinking and wondering and pondering what might be happening in your own context 
So, Cla- so Claude, as we think about this, I'm we're running out of time, so I'm gonna, I'm trying to wrap up and kind of pull this all together. Uh, you know, I sometimes find myself uh, wondering how um, how people in the church, when they engage with media, particularly the medium of films, the potential that some of this has to have us think about the way we live through the eyes of someone else who's helping us see. Um, uh, um, uh, how, what advice would you give to people as they think about uh, what they take in? And, of course, I'm going to give you a chance to do something I think you'll enjoy doing, and that is uh, helping people understand kind of what Windrider is about and, and, and what it does, what the opportunity it creates for people in terms of uh, thinking through film perhaps in a different kind of way. Well, films provide an opportunity for either a window – uh, to be given through which we're able to look outwardly or a mirror to be held before us uh, in which we are able to look introspectively. And so, and, and good films do both. Good films provide both a window through which one is able to see as well as a mirror uh, from which one is able to see oneself. And so that's, that's number one. Secondly, being able to identify what is the tension that this film is creating within me. There's a tension that a film always has within itself that it will either bring to resolution or leave unresolved. And within the course of that, we are drawn into it and certain tensions are created within us. Being able to identify what that is. So with the movie that that you just mentioned, After You Save the World, one of the points of tension that it created within me was seeing how what was driving both the mother and the son, how they were the same, but they were pursuing them differently. Mm-hmm and not recognizing it in each other until the very, very end. And, and how often is that the case between parent and child? So being able to interrogate the tension that the film is causing with, within me as I'm watching it either be resolved or not, as a film. So so it interrogates life and the way we look at life. It helps us understand a little bit. And of course, what Windrider is trying to do with the films that they um, promote and distribute is to help people um, get a look at some of the best of these films that do this for us and uh, do so in a way that is challenging us. I'm going to close with one final film. Uh, I, I think of all the films that I saw, and, and we've already talked about a lot that were impactful, and I can't believe what I've left out in going through this. We've only scratched the surface. Um, was the film uh, God's Country, which I thought was a fascinating film because uh, it portrayed a character whose life experience even though she was the central character in the story, ends up being a story of not being seen and understood, of being being present but invisible, if I can say it that way. Um, John, tell us about, about, about that one, God's Country. What's interesting about that film, so that film is in a category at the Sundance Film Festival called Premieres, which is uh, they're not in the competition which means they've probably already been acquired and um, they're already ready to go to distribution. But the filmmaker of God's Country is a young man named Julian Higgins. Julian Higgins, 12 years ago, won a Windrider Award for Best Short for Best Student Film at the Windrider Summit and Sundance Film Festival. Oh man! So we knew we knew Julian from 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. The film God's Country is a fe- feature film developed from a short film of a similar. Uh, storyline that was taken from a book. Hmm. And we had the opportunity to have Julian 
uh, do the Q&A with uh, our own John Sippity. And so some of your viewers can go on our website and also watch uh, the Q&A with this filmmaker and, uh, and John. But what was interesting to me is exactly what you mentioned, Daryl, this notion of not being seen, of not being seen. And I think that was a preeminent theme this year at Sundance from myriad contexts, yes. from very different points of view, uh, or being seen differently, or being seen um, in a way that would be not how you would want to be being seen. missing, and, or that, like, whatever. I was yeah, yeah. being missing. Yeah, Claude will fix that for you and I. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right. right. Somewhere from not being seen, unseen, to not being seen in the proper light. All those things came bubbling up to me in this in this particular film, and I was so focused on trying to see. Mm. And this, to me, is the broader theme of what we want to do, is to have conversa conversations around these films that unpeel the subject matter so that we can see, that we can see, so that when we go out into the world, our eyes are opened and maybe we can see things differently, a bit more nuanced, uh, uh, with a bit more empathy. Hmm. Claude, any final words you want to give us about the experience? I mean, it, it, like I said, it, it, you know, uh, in the church we believe in baptism. This is a baptism in film. So, uh, uh, <laughs> well, well, we are people who go to film. Uh, we see movies whether on our computers, phones, theaters. The the question is. How are we seeing them? And what Windrider does a good job is setting an environment and atmosphere for people to not simply see, but to see well, hmm. to see deeper, to see, to see fuller. Uh, God's country, another theme that wove throughout the Sundance experience was PTSD. Mm -hmm. There were several films that, that that raised that, and so, what is it that we're not seeing? What is it that we are seeing but not seeing fully? And how can we see better as a result? Hmm. Well, I want to thank you all for kind of um, helping us dip our toes into films and thinking about them Christianly and um, introduction to Wind Rider and what it does. A little bit of a feel for the Sundance Film Festival. I'm sure people hear about the Sundance Film Festival when it runs in January uh, every year. And what you get is a glimpse of films that either are coming or documentaries that you may not normally see, but that certainly ask real questions. And um, the value of the exercise is, to me, immense. And uh, well worth it, and I want to thank you for sharing your interest and expertise with us today on, on how Christians can think about uh, films in, in perhaps in a positive kind of way that uh, that they may not uh, normally think about when they when they think about the films that they see. I tell my students, uh, ask the question, ask and catch the questions that films are raising about life, and you will hear the voice of someone looking for location and, uh, uh, and, and or helping you to get located. And um, sometimes that insight can be very, very valuable. So thank you all very, very much. And I want to thank you for being a part of the table, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. If you want to see other versions of the podcast, you can go to voice.dts.edu, where we have now over 350 hours worth of material accumulated over 10 years of doing podcasts. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary of podcasting this year, and we hope to see you again soon at the next uh, installment of The Table. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.